I want us to spend just a few minutes kind of thinking about who it is that wrote this book. Um, when we look at this letter, we look at the way that it was introduced here, um, we can assume that this guy James was probably a fairly known person in the early church. The fact that he doesn't give any kind of description of where he's from or who his parents are or anything like that leads us to believe that this is probably someone that everyone knew. Just simply by the name James, they would have known who this was. Well, there were three guys named James that are found in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John, you know, one of the sons of thunder. Um, he, is, he was one of Jesus' apostles. We don't think he wrote this book because of the fact that he died before the book was likely written. James the apostle, uh, the brother of John, he died at about 44 AD in Acts chapter 12 when he was executed by Herod. And so we don't think that's the guy. There's another apostle of Jesus who was named James the son of Alphaeus. <clears throat> but we don't think he wrote the book because he never is spoken of outside of whenever the, the apostles are listed by name in the Gospels. We don't hear anything from him in the book of Acts. We don't hear anything from him after in, in early church writings, anything like that. So we don't think he's the guy. And so the guy we think most likely wrote this letter was James, the half-brother of Jesus. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it tells us that Mary and Joseph had other kids. One of those kids was named James. And so James, the brother of Jesus, he eventually becomes a prominent leader in the early church. Um, in Acts chapter 15, we read that he's a part of the Jerusalem council, that group, of, that group of leaders in the early church that was deciding what to do with these Gentile believers. How were they to be a part of what was going on? And so we believe that he was the one that, that wrote it. But interestingly, James, this guy who wrote this letter, did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, the Word of God makes it seem as if James actually opposed Jesus and he actually worked against the Lord during Jesus' earthly ministry. Like take, for instance, John chapter 7, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, and so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're mocking him here. It says in verse 5 that not even his brothers believed in him. Mark chapter 3 verse 20 says that Jesus at one point went home and the crowds gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And so James was an unbeliever. He didn't place his faith in Christ for salvation until after Jesus was resurrected. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Paul writes that Jesus appeared to James, the brother of our Lord. And it wasn't until James was confronted by the resurrected Jesus that he then placed his faith in his earthly brother as his heavenly Lord. As I prayed and thought about just the life of James and, and the, the path of faith that James took, what I came to realize is this. Point number one I want to make this morning is we are all James. We're all James. And let me explain what I mean. I mean, could you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus? I mean, just for a moment, could you imagine being the younger sibling of the perfect Savior of the Lord? I mean, how many times growing up did you ever hear your parents say, why can't you just be like your brother? Could you imagine being James and constantly being told by Mary, why can't you just be like Jesus? Come on. Why can't you just be perfect like Jesus? But if ever there was a person who could claim special status, 
If ever there was a person who might be able to walk up to the gates of heaven and say, hey, you know what, I ought to be able to get in here because I'm the brother of Jesus. I mean, I came from the same womb as Jesus did. I mean, I grew up with the guy. I could tell you stories about his childhood. I could do all these things. If ever there was a person who you would think would, would have a, a privilege, a family privilege, privilege to earn in a mansion in heaven, it might have been James. Yet this is what's true. James's family didn't earn him a place in heaven. Not at all. The family he grew up in didn't earn him the right to gain interest into heaven at all. I heard a story one time about some kids who were arguing about whose dad was the greatest. and um, You know how kids do that sometimes. Well, my dad does this and my dad does that. Um, and I heard this story about these kids and they began to argue. And one, dad, one kid said, well, my dad's a farmer, so I get to eat for nothing. Another kid said, well, my dad owns a clothing store, so I get new clothes for nothing. And then the preacher's son came up and said, well, my dad's a preacher, so I get to be good for nothing. <laughs> you know, sometimes family connections mean something. And sometimes family heritage and sometimes uh, um, the, the family you're born into can mean a lot of things. And sometimes it, it just didn't. And sometimes it doesn't really make that much difference. Like, for instance, growing up, my, my grandfather used to always tell me that I was related to Jesse James, and I always liked to throw that out to my friends when I was growing up and tell them, well, I'm related to Jesse James, so I can shoot a gun, but obviously I really can't. If you've ever seen me shoot a gun, I can't shoot that straight. My wife, Kim, is, she's a Williams, and her grandfather used to be so proud of this big Williams family book that he had, that he got in. It showed all their lineage way, way back. I can't remember how long it went. And her name was in the book, and all these other names were in this book. Well, there was one particular name in the book that we always thought was very entertaining, and it was Hank Williams Jr. Um, and somehow, some way, she's related to Hank Williams Jr. But you know what? Being related to Hank Williams Jr., you'll notice my wife doesn't sing in the choir. Uh, she's not much. She did not inherit that musical gene from old Bo Cephas. Um, but you know what? Sometimes our families matter like that. Sometimes we inherit things, but sometimes we don't. But let me tell you one thing we don't. One way in which our family doesn't earn you special privilege, you're not born saved. You're not born saved. I mean, just as James couldn't claim a spot in heaven because of the fact that he was the brother of Jesus, we can't claim a pass into heaven. We can't claim salvation simply based on the faith of our family members. We must place faith. In Jesus. I mean, we might inherit our eye color, we might inherit our height, we might inherit some particular talent from a parent, but you do not inherit faith. You do not inherit salvation. You must place your own faith in the Lord. You know, and let me just say this as well you're not a Christian simply because you attend church. Just the fact that you attend church every single Sunday, even for, you could attend church all your life every single Sunday, and that doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. Being in the building doesn't make you a Christian. No more than sitting in your garage makes you a car. You must place your faith in the Lord. James was saved because he was confronted by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus, he came to the reality, he realized in that moment that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He placed his faith in Jesus for salvation. The resurrected Jesus transformed his life. And just like James, we must place our faith in Jesus as individuals. We must be confronted 
by the resurrected Savior and come to face the reality and come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He is the Son of God, and that He is the only way to salvation. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are like James in that to be saved, we must place our faith in the Lord as individuals. Second point I want to make this morning is that we are Christ's slaves. He says there in that first verse, James introduces himself. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever talk to somebody who is a name dropper? You know those people who want to make sure that you know all the people that they know? Um, I talked to a guy this week, got on the phone with a guy this week, and he spent, I forget, I, can't, I lost track of the m- m- number of names he gave me in the amount of time he spent trying to explain to me how he was related to this important person and how he knew this important person and how he worked with this important person. But unfortunately for him, I didn't know any of his important people. He spent all this time and energy, I guess, to try to make me feel like he was someone important, and I really had no clue who he was talking about. You know, what James, when he wrote this book, going back to the idea, you know, he is the brother of Jesus. You, could, you would have thought that maybe he would have introduced his letter by saying, James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Greetings. You ought to listen to me because I have a title, because I know the right people. But he didn't. He didn't claim some, some place of special influence, some place of, of special, uh, you know, title because of the fact of who he was related to or who he knew. Instead, this is the title he claims, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this. What boy wants to call himself the servant of his older brother? None. Not unless he realizes that's the right position for him to be in. And that was James here. He realized that the only place he needed to be, the only title he needed was to call himself the servant of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word servant there can also mean slave. It's the Greek word doulos. A servant, a slave, is one who is owned by a master. It's one whose life is determined by another. Um, what he does, what he eats, what he drinks, where he goes, when he works, when he's off. All of those things are, are under the control of another person. And James here is saying, that's who I am. I am a servant. I am a slave of the Lord Jesus. He is my master. He is my ruler. He is my king. He is my Lord. And it must be our title too. That's the title we must assume, that we are Christ's slaves. I'm afraid sometimes we misunderstand that title, Lord. And I'm afraid sometimes we underestimate what it means to be called Christ's servant, to be called Christ's slave. I think sometimes we start to think of it like a boss. You know, back when I was in high school, I worked at Piggly Wiggly. I was a a sacker at the local Piggly Wiggly down the street from my house. And, um, you know, I had some good bosses there, and and I tried to work hard. I would go there, I'd clock in, I'd do my work. Clock out, go home. I'd collect my paycheck, and you know, and I had some good bosses, had a good relationship with my boss, but you know what? My boss didn't own me. He didn't control what I did. Now, he told me what to do when I was on the clock, you know, when I was there working, and he told me when I needed to be at work, and so I had to do those things, but he didn't own me. He didn't rule over my life. I still had a personal life. I got to decide what I did with my paycheck. I got to decide what I did with my free time. James didn't write here 
that he was an employee of God and of the boss, Jesus. He wrote that he was a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus, because we are not employees of Christ, and he is not merely our boss. He is our Lord, our master. Let's think about that relationship for just a minute. When we think about a good slave, a good servant, um, I think there's a couple of things that we can say. A good one, one that we would call a good servant is one who is loyal. He's loyal in his heart. He's loyal in his affections. He's genuine. He's honest in, in, in his dealings with his master. And I would also say that a good servant is one who is obedient as well, correct? That you would call a servant good if he does what he's told to do, if he does all that he's told to do. Well, you know what? A servant can be obedient yet not be loyal, can't he? I mean, isn't it possible for someone to be the servant of another and he'll do everything that he's told to do, but he's not really obeying in his heart? He's only obeying because there's an advantage to it. You know, but he, he might be obeying. He might be obeying on the outside, but his heart might be full of anger, might be full of resentment, might be full of thoughts of deceit. Maybe he's just biding his, biding his time until he can escape. You know, as believers, we can be obedient to Christ's commands, but not necessarily be loyal. We can go through seasons of life when we might obey what the Word of God tells us to do, but our hearts are not there. You might remember in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us about that. He tells us, for instance, you know, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but if anyone has anger within his heart against his brother, he's guilty of murder. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but if anyone has lust in his heart, he's, he's guilty of it. And what, did, what is Jesus saying there? That our in, inward hearts, that our heart's desires are just as important as our actions. And so he's telling us that we not only must be obedient in our actions, but we must be obedient and loyal in our hearts. And so we can be guilty of obeying the Lord, but yet not be loyal to the Lord. And I would even say that, we can, that a servant, a slave, can, be, can appear loyal on the surface, but yet not be obedient. You know, uh, uh, he might be guilty of, of talking the talk. He can be deceptive. He can make it appear as if he's obedient, but yet at the same time he's full of deceit and disobedience. And we can do the same thing with the Lord. We can genuinely try to fool others into thinking that we are, that we are strong in our walk with the Lord. We can talk the talk. We could sit in church every week. We can provide answers in Sunday school. We can quote the verses and make everyone think, man, that guy... That woman, that man has got a tremendous walk with the Lord, but yet at the same time we can do all that and be hiding a life of sin. I've lost track of the number of people that I've met who had to face that reality that they look good on the outside. They made everything look nice, but their hearts were full of darkness. Well, our Lord Jesus tolerates neither. He demands that we are both loyal and we are both obedient. And here's why. Because he is the Lord who is God. That verse in James, it says there, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It can be translated two different ways, and I think both ways are true. You could translate it the way it's read right there, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it could also be translated like, translated like this. James could be saying, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. 
Jesus is our Lord who is God. And if He is God, he de- it demands us. There is nothing else we can do but live with Him as our Lord. He demands our loyalty. He demands our obedience. Now, before you worry about that whole word slave that I put there, let me just say this. I know that slavery is a loaded word, and I know when we think about slavery and you hear that word, what, what generally comes to mind is our nation's history and the time in our nation's history whenever slavery was unfortunately a part of our history. And we might think of those individuals who were kidnapped from their homelands and transported to America in despicable conditions, terrible conditions, and were sold as possessions and used as possessions. And many of those masters who bought those slaves were cruel, unloving, despicable men. And they used and abused those slaves like farm tools. Let me just say, do not read that idea into Scripture. Because our master is not despicable. He's not a terror. He's a loving, compassionate, kind, forgiving God who sent His Son to die on a cross for you. And when I came to realize that, I gladly gave myself as a slave to Him because He's given us all for me. And so we are Christ's slave. But then James writes this in the last part of the verse here. He says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings, he says. That phrase 12 tribes there, if you've read the Old Testament, you would recognize that. That was a title for the Jewish people, for the Israelites in the Old Testament. But at this point in history, he's writing sometime either 45 A.D. up to about 62 A.D. is where we think somewhere in there. Um, It had been centuries since the the Jews had called themselves the 12 tribes. Centuries. That wasn't a title. They simply, at this point in history, were called the Jews. Even before the Babylonian captivity took place in 586 B.C., the Jews weren't really the 12 tribes then. They were two kingdoms. It was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so James might have been using that title because he wanted Jewish Christians, he wanted their minds to go back to the time when there was one chosen people of God, right? Maybe that was why he did it. But then he also says here that he's writing to the Jews in the dispersion, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And that that word dispersion there refers to that time in Jewish history that began in 722 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire came in and conquered the Israelite, the northern kingdom of Israel. And they dispersed the Israelites throughout their kingdom in order to, to keep them from gathering together and trying to fight back. And then the same thing happened to... Uh, to the people of Judah in 586 B.C. when they were captured by the Babylonians. And so when you write of and when you read of uh, the Jews who were living in dispersion, it's talking about those Jews who were living during that time when they were not home. They were scattered across, the, across what was the known world to them. They were, they, were, they were separated from their families. They were separated from their home. They didn't want to be there. It wasn't by their own choice. There was a longing in their heart to be home. They wanted to be back together. And God even promised that there would be a day in which they would be home again as one people. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 10. We've been studying Jeremiah on Sunday nights with Gary. And in 31.10 it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his And so we see this picture in Jeremiah that the Lord was going to bring His people back together. And so coming back to James chapter 1 verse 1, I had to ask this question this week as I studied this. Was James only writing to the Jews? 
Is that who he was writing to? And I don't think that's true. I think he was writing to us. And here's why. Romans eleven seventeen tells us that the church, that we as the church have been grafted in to the people of God. And so God does not have two people. It's not that God has Israel and the church. Israel and the church have been brought together into one people. One doesn't replace the other. We are together as God's chosen and holy set-apart people. Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16 calls us the Israel of God. And so James is talking to us. But with that word dispersion, this is what it reminded me of this week. We are not home. We are not home. We are away from where God desires us to be. The majority of Christians at this time were Jews. And that decision to follow Christ came, came with a, a very steep cost. Those Jewish Christians um, were abandoned by their families. They were pushed out. They were put out. History tells us that these first century Jewish Christians um, found themselves homeless. They were helpless. They had no one standing behind them. They had less standing as, than slaves did oftentimes. They didn't have a people, it seemed. And so they were most definitely not home, and they felt it. And we must remember the same. Point number three, we are not home. We're not home. This is not our home that we live in. This earth, this world, this nation that we live in, this is not our ultimate home. We are a displaced people. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God's people have been away from home, God's presence. And so we must remember that we are foreigners in a strange land. 1 Peter chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 11, 13 calls us strangers and exiles. That we are not where God, where we ought to be with the Lord. And so we are citizens of heaven who are living in a fallen world that is ruled over by the prince of darkness, Satan. And so we must live as people who are not home. And so as those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who have been called His people, we must be careful that we do not become, become comfortable in this world. That we do not become like this world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16 tells us, Do not love the world. In His high priestly prayer, Jesus in John 17, 16 said that we are not to be of this world. And why do I say that? Because when we begin to live at home in this world, we lose our identity. We forget who we are. We begin to live like the fallen world around us. We stop living in obedience as servants, slaves of Jesus. And we start living as servants and slaves to sin. Reminds me of Genesis chapter 19. We won't turn there just for the sake of time, but... In Genesis 19, we find the story of Lot when he was living in Sodom. You might remember that, that Lot was the nephew of Abraham, and there came a point where they were living together, and their, their flocks became too large, their people became too many, and the land was not great enough to support them. And so they decided to go in separate directions, and Lot chose to go in the direction of Sodom. Sodom was a wicked city. It was a vile city. It was a city that was full of immorality. But unfortunately, Lot made himself at home in Sodom. The Bible tells us that he was sitting at the gates there in the city, which meant that he had become a leader in the city. He'd become a part of the culture there. 
And in Genesis chapter 19, verse 16, it tells us that the angel of the Lord came to Lot and warned Lot, told him to get his family out of the city. And unfortunately, what we read is that Lot did not leave at first when he was told to leave. It says he lingered. Why? Because he was at home there. His heart had grown fond of that city. And it wasn't that he was fond of it because he wanted to see those people come to the Lord. I believe it was fond of it because he had become grown fond of the sin there. He'd become at home in this world. And when he did so, he quit hearing the Lord. Because here was the angel of the Lord telling him, get yourself out of town, and he lingered. He was content to be there. He was comfortable. Let me tell you something that's true. We are living in Sodom. When we think about the wickedness of our world today, when we, when we look at the news, you turn on the news and see the despicable things you, that you see and, and the, the sexual immorality and the perversion that we see, guess what, folks? We are living in Sodom. And we better remember we're not home. And so this morning as I close, that's the question I need to ask. To the Christian in the room, have you become comfortable in this world? Have you forgotten that you are living in the dispersion, that you are living away from home, away from where the Lord desires you to be in His presence by His side? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16 tells us that we are salt and light. And that we are to live a different life. So that when the world looks at us, they see us and they glorify God in heaven. There ought to be something in our lives that point them to Jesus. But when we become comfortable with this world, we lose our salt. We lose our lightness. And so to the Christian in this room, have you become comfortable in this world? Have you forgotten that this is not your home? If that's the case, maybe today you need to spend some time repenting. Turning back to the Lord and saying, God, I'm not home. I want to live for my heavenly home. I don't want to get caught up in this kingdom. I don't want to get caught up in this world. I don't want to fall in love with the things of this world. I want to fall in love with you. And for the unbeliever in the room today, maybe you're here and you are not a Christian. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never received him as Savior and Lord. Let me tell you this. The only way, the only way that you can have eternal life, eternal life, is if you encounter the resurrected Jesus, just like James. If you encounter the resurrected Jesus, just like so many of us in this room have, that point in which we realized that this thing about Jesus is no fairy tale. This is not something that just makes us feel better, but this is the truth that Jesus really did come to this earth, died on a cross, rose from the grave, did all that while living a sinless life. And in doing so, he proved that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Today, do you need to come to the Lord for salvation? Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray as we come to this time of invitation today that if there are individuals that need to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be that day. God, if there's someone here who's trusting in their family for their salvation, I pray they would see that's not, that's not going to work. 
if they're trusting in their church attendance for salvation, if they're trusting in their actions and their deeds for salvation. I pray they would see that they cannot earn their way to heaven. The only way that they can have a relationship with you is through the work that Jesus did on the cross. I pray if there's someone today who needs to receive Jesus, that they would come forward at this invitation and we would get to celebrate with them their new life in Christ. And Father, for we the church, I pray that we would live as slaves of Jesus Christ. That we would understand that this is not our home and our lives are not our own. But they belong to our master, Jesus. And I pray that we would live every single day longing for our heavenly home. That place where we will be one day where there will be no more sin, no more sorrow. And we will experience the presence of God. Father, help us to live for that next world every single day and to point others there as well. I pray the Holy Spirit would have his way in this time of invitation. And it's in Christ's name I do pray these things. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing?